I was uh, in Fredericton, Fredericton, Fredericton last weekend, and I was up there preaching at a church there with a friend of mine, pastors, and uh, it, was, it was fun to go visit. Uh, and I, 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 for those of you who don't know, I grew up in Fredericton. That's my hometown. And so I, was, I stayed at my parents' house. Uh, they were in Florida, so they gave us the house for the weekend. It was a nice time. Uh, there's no place like home. I'll tell you that, though. Man, I missed being at King's Church, and I'm glad to be home this week. But I was filling up my gas in Marysville, where I grew up, at the Irving Station. And I'm sitting there pumping my gas. And I'm looking around the town that I grew up, grew up in and the streets I used to walk. And I looked across the street. And I saw a house, and all of a sudden, like, a chill went up my spine, and a fear that I hadn't felt in a very long time kind of hit me. I saw a house, and I was reminded that that's the house of my childhood nemesis, Nikki Brown. <laughs> Sounds like a bully, doesn't he, Nikki Brown? Nikki, if you're watching online, man, I hope everything worked out well for you, and uh, I, I, I pray and hope that you're a blessed man like I am these, at this point in my life. But you, freaked, you, you scared me, man, as a kid. I'm just saying. Nikki, Nikki was my first bully, the first guy that ever, like, just conflict. Anybody ever have a bully? Ever have a nemesis or someone? Maybe it wasn't a bully, but maybe it was someone that just conflict with you. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're Lex Luthor to your Superman. You're, you're Joker to your Batman. You're Newman to your Seinfeld. Anybody have, a, have one of those? Yeah, and so I, I had a Nicky Brown, and, and I remember like from fourth grade through eighth grade, he just always had just one on me. He was always just stronger and bigger and faster, and he always let me know it. And I remember just living in constant fear of him, avoiding that house like the plague, just because Nicky would come running out at me or whatever. And uh, it, was, it just amazed me as I was filling my gas, thinking, wow, it's like it's been 25 years since then, and I'm a grown man, and I still have memories of being afraid of that guy. It's amazing what conflict will do to you, isn't it? It's incredible like how it has this way of just rooting itself in your mind. Maybe for you it wasn't a someone. Maybe you've dealt with conflict and battles in your past, not with a someone but a something. Maybe something happened to you. Maybe you went through something. Or maybe it was a something, it was a substance that you've dealt with. Maybe that's been your enemy. Maybe it's been alcohol. Maybe some of you are like, carbohydrates, that's been my enemy, carbs, right? Like I Maybe for you it's been, it's been a pornography or something. You've had your battles. I think it's, it's safe to say that every one of us knows what it feels like to have an adversary, to have a, a conflict in our lives. Every one of us. You don't have to be a believer to, to believe that there, is, there are battles in this world. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're probably going through some right now. There are issues that you face, uh, circumstances that we war with. There are struggles that we have in this world. You can't live in this world and be exempt from battles. And it doesn't matter what part of the world you live in. There are different battles in different parts of the world. But the, the reality is this, that we live in a place and in a world where there are constant conflicts and struggles, both personally and as countries and nations, we live in a world of conflict. Am I correct? You, you know what I'm talking about. We, that's, that's the world we live in. And if you look around, it's just con constant conflict, constant tension, constant power struggles happening wherever you look, whether it's countries, whether it's uh, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un threatening one another, or it's uh, just a few weeks ago in Las Vegas. I mean, a guy climbs up to the top of a building and opens up a window and starts opening fire with automatic weapons on innocent crowd, an innocent crowd of concert goers. We live in a world of, of trouble and battles and conflict 
And the Bible would actually have you look beneath just the surface level of those things, whether it's a bully or it's an instance or it's something that you've gone through. The Bible would actually call you to look beneath that struggle to find the fact that, yes, we live in a battle zone. We live in a world of conflict and struggles and issues, and all of you know that. But the Bible actually tells us that the root of all of these issues that we face is not just happenstance. It's not just bad luck. It's not just that bad things happen to bad people or good people. It's not just that there are some bad apples that spoil the bunch. It's in fact that there are spiritual realities at the core of this world we call home that are actually driving all of these difficulties and struggles. I think it's actually interesting that we're talking about conflict and the battles that we face this weekend. On the weekend, we commemorate Remembrance Day. I think if you had a chance, or maybe some of you have a grandparent that actually fought in World War II, if you were to talk to them about the horrors that they witnessed, that seeing the front lines, or maybe some of you have, know someone that fought in the Korean conflict, or maybe since in Afghanistan or the Gulf War, and you've talked to people who have actually seen real human uh, like fighting happening, most of them would probably tell you, yeah, there's the human component, there's that kind of clash of powers, and, and there's this war happening, but there's something darker and deeper at the root of it that's really, that's what, that's what hangs over you. You see, the world tells us, or the Bible tells us, that this world we live in, that there are actually powers beneath the surface that are actually driving all of these conflicts, that you and I live in a, world, in a, in a war zone, and there are actually powers, spiritual powers, that drive the conflict that you and I face in this world. Paul said it like this in Ephesians chapter 6. It's a great chapter to get your head around the struggles that we have in this world. But he says in Ephesians 6, he said that the struggles we have in this world, our struggle, our war is not against flesh and blood. It's not against flesh and blood. That means it's not against people. That your struggle is not with people. It's not against matter itself. It's not, you know what, your struggle is not with alcohol. Your struggle is not with pornography. Your, your struggle is actually deeper than that. There is a spiritual power that is actually at work and at play behind the scenes and under the surface. Ephesians 6, let's read it. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's fancy language for saying this, that there is a spiritual reality, a spiritual component behind the scenes of your struggles that is actually driving the whole thing. We live in a war zone of constant battles, and the Bible wants you first and foremost to realize that your greatest struggles and your greatest powers are actually being brought forth by spiritual forces. Now, here's the good news. For every battle we have been given victory. For every battle, we have been given victory in Jesus. We have been, for the last few weeks, going through this series called God Is. And we've been looking at the 23rd Psalm. And Psalm 23 talks about, uh, it's, it's, this, it's this poem written by a guy named David. Uh, he was the king of Israel some 26, 2700 years ago he wrote this. And it was his observation near the end of his life, looking back over, realizing that God had brought him through many valleys and many mountaintops and all kinds of experiences. And he writes this poem to, to describe who his God is. And so each week we've been looking verse by verse at something that we can pull from to find out who this God is because that's, that's the trick, isn't it? Many of you who have been searching for God, that you don't know how to understand God. And so we've been unpacking that each week. We found out that God is good. 
that he's our good shepherd. That's the language that David used to begin with. He's like a shepherd, a good shepherd who cares for his sheep. He's, God is God. We talked about how he does it all for his namesake, that, that you and I are, are, have been created for and by his glory. We found out that God isn't just good and he's not just God, but God is with us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Remember the Coolio song? Even though I walk through the valley, God is with us. That means that I am with the very power that can overcome anything that would overcome me. And then last week we talked about this. Pastor Andy did such an amazing job talking about how God doesn't just go with us through the valley, but he actually guides us and corrects us. And like a good father, he will bring us on to completion and joy. And now this week, we find that actually the language in the psalm shifts gears. And it goes from talking about God as a shepherd who is kind of caring for his sheep, and it actually now uses different language. And we get to verse 5, and it says this, you... Talking again about God, verse 5, bring it up, Psalm 23, verse 5. says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So he shifts language, and now he's talking about a battle and a table. He's talking about a conflict and a place in which God, he, you, God, has prepared for him to find Rest. He shifts the whole language from God as my shepherd to God as my host. That now this is a different way for us to understand how God takes care of us. And he, he shifts the language and he talks about a table that God has prepared before us in the presence of my enemies. Here's, here, first and foremost, I want to talk about the enemy here for a few minutes. But he says there's a table in the presence of my enemies, that, there, that, that both this, there's this reality that God has set before me, and I want to unpack that. But the Bible doesn't make any bones about it. It's not in denial, the fact that we live in a world of conflict. David even knows it. He says this, that you, are, you have prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. A lot of us come to faith hoping that faith in God is some cosmic exemption from struggle. That when I come to Jesus and I come to find faith, that he's going to somehow like pluck me out of all the troubles of this world. And now, you know what? My, my life is going to be easy peasy lemon squeezy. Like it's just, going to, it's just going to be, anybody watch Fresh Beat Band? Anybody have a two-year-old? No? Okay, never mind. It, it, we, we have this idea that we are going to be pulled out of the battle. But in fact, the Bible from beginning until the very end, when it says in Revelation, God will vanquish the enemy entirely that the hope we have actually comes up from within the battle. That God isn't just God over the battle, God is God in the battle. And that God is a God who actually pre prepares a place, a table for us in the midst of that place of conflict. God is a God that wants you to find him faithful and powerful and true and saving in the midst of your struggle. He wants to overcome it by coming up from within it. If you, think about, if you think about the gospel of Jesus and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and how Jesus has saved the world and how Jesus came on the scene, how did it look? Did it look like him coming as a king as the clouds split open and he just brought all the authority of heaven down upon earth and reestablished the new government? No, it didn't look like that. It looked like... God born in a manger. We're going to be talking about this in a few weeks. Can you believe Christmas is coming up? Anybody ready for that? It's juice, relax. But how did God come? How did God send salvation? 
He didn't end the battle. He conquered the battle from fighting within it. You see, we serve a God who actually wants to get in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our battle, in the midst of our conflict. And he does that by preparing a table before us. Now, what is the table? What does the table represent? Or should I better say, who does the table represent? Yeah, someone whispered it. Jesus. Here's a pro tip. We say this a lot around here. Um, If I ask a question about who, generally, I'm going to say 99 times, 999 times out of 100, we're talking about Jesus at church. So, yeah, the table actually represents Jesus. The table actually represents Jesus. If you remember uh, a couple weeks ago when we, when we launched into Psalm 23, I told you how Psalm 23 is what's known as a messianic psalm. It's actually speaking forward to something Jesus would accomplish. Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24 are a trilogy all speaking forward about the coming Messiah and what he would accomplish. And so the table is a representation what God does in preparing a table. It's actually speaking to what Jesus has already accomplished on the cross. That Jesus himself is the table, and the table is a picture of the gospel of Jesus that has been given to you and I. So it's another way to understand who God is and what God provides for us. The table is Jesus. So when you get thinking about this analogy, you get thinking about the Bible, the table is Jesus. And Jesus is a table that has been prepared for you in the presence of your enemies. He is a table, a place of safety, a place of rest, a place of provision, a place of victory, a place where the enemy can only surround you and look. But as long as you are seated at the table, you're seated in victory. The table is my place of victory. And as long as I'm seated at the table, or another, another way we, we talk about being seated at the table is using language like, I'm in Christ. As long as I place my faith in Christ and I seat myself in that reality, I align myself with that reality, I am situated, I am seated in a place of complete and utter victory over all that encompasses me. That is what the table represents. It represents Jesus. It represents the gospel. The gospel is what? The gospel is salvation. The gospel is like uh, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He gave it. He prepared it. He, He laid him out on a cross. This is why we celebrate communion. We celebrate the last week uh, where we come forward and there's a cup and there's bread and it's a supper. It's a, it's a picture of what has been given in Jesus. Jesus has, is this cosmic, this table that God has created before us that if we in faith come and we seat ourselves in alignment with that reality, we actually are seated in complete and utter victory. Jesus is the table set before us in the presence of our enemies. Jesus, the table, is our place of salvation. It's our place of sustenance. It's our place of victory. It is the place that when we rest here and we seat ourselves in that reality, we have overwhelming victory. This is what Paul was saying. In, uh, he said it in 1 Corinthians. He said uh, that in Christ, he gives us overwhelming victory. That, that, that's what the table represents. It's the place where we are seated in victory. That's the gospel. Uh, Colossians 2.13 says this, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. What's the table? Well, table, the table is the place where we leave the death of our sins and we, seat, we are seated in the life of Christ. 
That's the table. Let's keep reading Colossians 2. God made you alive with Christ. So what's happening when I sit at the table? I am alive. The table is the place of life. It's the place where we receive life. It says he forgave us all of our sins. The table is the place where when we sit here, we find forgiveness of how many of our sins? Wow. Even that one you're trying to convince yourself God could never forgive. We have been forgiven when we sit at the table, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. The table is the place where we find mercy. The table is the place where we find life. The table is the place where we find forgiveness. The table is the place where we find hope. The table is the place where we find a God who so loves us. The table is a place where we find purpose. The table is a place where we find peace. The table is a place where we find our greatest source of joy and sustenance and salvation and satisfaction. The table is the place that if you can just stay seated here, you win. But that's the battle. The battle in this world, the battle in your life and my life is to stay seated at the table. Now the Bible says that God has prepared a table. It says in Psalm 23 verse 5, just keep that open and let's just meditate on it today. We're going to try to move pretty quick, but it says that God has prepared a table before me. The table is? Okay, good. We got it. You're one for one or one for two. The table is Jesus, and he's prepared a table, and when I, when I sit in Jesus, I'm sitting in victory, but it happens in the presence of my enemies, David says. Now, the Bible says that we have enemies, but that, in fact, there's actually one enemy above all of the enemies. The Bible talks about an enemy of our souls, Satan. And the Bible talks about Satan. The Bible has many names for Satan. The father of lies, the prince of demons, Beelzebub. There's all kinds of names, and you find him all throughout the Bible. And he, in fact, is the adversary of God. Did you know that, that actually, although Satan hates us, he hates us because he hates God? The reason that Satan constantly is after you and I, which the Bible says he is, look at, let's look at a verse, 1 Peter 5, 8. Look what it says. It says, be alert and of sober mind. What's it say? Your enemy, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is trying to devour you. There is a real enemy in the spiritual reality that you and I cannot see. And he would love for you to just think about your life in terms of what is tangible and touchable and seeable and feel, feelable. He would love for you to think about him as some like red, red horned, uh, you know, whatever that pick thing is. What's that? The pronged thing. Pitchfork. Yeah, it's early. A pitchforked, red horned, red tights wearing, you know, caricature. He would love for you to think of him like that. As long as you aren't accurate, as long as you don't recognize that, in fact, he is your real enemy and he is the one that is using those things that you're struggling with to destroy your life. But the battle we face is with him. And he, in fact, hates God. He, from the beginning, it says in Ezekiel that he, for, at, at the beginning, he was actually the, one of the archangels. Satan was one of the archangels in God's uh, reality in heaven. And then, in fact, he fell because he began to want himself elevated with God. And that's, that, in fact, is the ultimate of that is idolatry. And so he was cast out of heaven. And ever since then, he has been trying to get back at God by destroying his creation. Here's a question, those of you who are parents. What is the, probably the, the, the worst thing someone could do to you? It's attacking your kids, correct? The reason Satan hates you so much is, well, because he hates God that much. 
and God loves you. And so the Bible says that Satan prowls around looking for someone to devour. And now here's, here's, the, here's where the battle and the rubber meets the road. It says that God has prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies, that, that he has created this space, this safe harbor, this place of life and sustenance in Christ Jesus. But it's happened in a world that Satan still runs rampant looking to devour you, but he frankly has no access to this table. And did you know that Satan himself from the beginning has had zero authority? He's had no authority other than what you and I have chosen to give him. So here's where the battle happens. The battle for life and death has always been for humans, and it is still to this day for you, whether or not we can stay seated at this table. And the table is God's word. The table is Jesus. The table is what God has said. And so the table and the fight of faith is to actually believe what God has said in spite of what you see. And that becomes the great challenge, and that is where the enemy will tempt you. The enemy can only stand around the table and speak. Do you know how the enemy attacks you? By speaking lies. That's the only tactic the enemy has against God's people. It's by speaking, and when he speaks, he only speaks lies. Jesus said in John 6 that he is a murderer and he has spoken lies from the beginning. That is how he attacks us. He uses lies. I want, I want you to pull up Genesis 3. If you have a Bible, I'll have it on the screen. I want you to look at this. It'll give you some, uh, just some framework for how Satan attacks humans. Look at this. It says in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. What did he just do? The enemy comes in, and the temptation for Adam and Eve was not that the fruit looked so good. The temptation where the enemy attacks is by trying to get you to not trust what God has said. Did God really say? That's the temptation. Did God really say you're saved? Did God really say you're accepted? Did God really say that you can find peace in Christ Jesus? This is this, it's been the same temptation from the beginning. Did God really say you must not eat from the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the midst of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Look what he does next. You'll certainly not die. You see what he's doing? He's inserting lies to get Adam and Eve off of God's truth. The battle for your life, the battle for my life is to be able to trust and believe what God has said when the enemy comes to distort and distract me from it. That's what's happening right here. You'll certainly not die, verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took it and the story goes on and she gave it to, to, to Adam and thus came the fall of man. See, the battle that you and I face is to stay seated at the table. And when the enemy attacks us, he attacks us by using lies. If the enemy can get you up from the table, he can kill you. If the enemy, think about this. God's word, God's word what God says, what God does is life. And he, his truth brings life. So the enemy has to spell lies to bring us off of the truth that brings life. Are, you, are, are we tracking? Are you looking at, are you getting this? 
The enemy will only attack you in that space. He will come to you and he will try to get access to you at the table. And you are seated at the table. You're enjoying your meal that is Jesus, the, the, the meal of your soul. And the enemy will stand here and all he can do is talk. That's all the enemy can do. He can only talk to try to gain access. And there are four main lies that he will use to try to gain access to the table. Ultimately, he is trying to get you to leave the table because he knows if you leave the table, you die. That's his one and only ploy is to get you to leave the table. He has four main lies. I want to show them to you really quick. The first is this. Four lies and four truths about the table that will break down every lie. The first lie is this. He will appeal to your fear. He will stand back here and he'll start to speak to you. You ever have a thought come into your mind out of nowhere? You ever have like a terrifying thought come into your mind out of nowhere? Maybe you parents, you have some fear that just comes in about your child, or maybe you have some fear that comes in about uh, your bank account, or maybe you have some fear that comes flying in about something that happened in your past. That's what the enemy does. He'll just drop something, basically encoded, uh, having this line with some kind of language. He'll say something along the lines of, it's not gonna end well for you. And that'll pop in your mind. And what happens is, as soon as we start to dialogue with the enemy and we allow that entrance into our minds, what we're effectively doing is allowing Satan to pull up a seat at the table. And we're, allow we're allowing a murderer to sit down in our minds. And we're allowing him to sit here and begin to have dialogue along any certain line. How are you doing today? Yeah? Mind if I have an olive? Satan's food. <laughs> oh, man, that's so bad. That is so bad. I asked for a, real, a few real pieces of food, and they gave me olives. That's bitter. Satan talked with his mouth full, by the way. So, uh, do you see on Facebook last week? Yeah, your, your girlfriend from high school, you saw their marriage end today. Yeah, it's too bad. Well, it's because her husband was traveling a lot. You know what happens when husbands travel a lot, right? Like, well, you know what? Your, your husband travels a lot too. Yeah. Yeah, you should be concerned. Shouldn't you be concerned about that? Like, I mean, man, you should be afraid. Shouldn't you be afraid? And these dialogues go on in our mind where he just tries to get us to entertain these thoughts and to go back and forth. And the longer you talk with him, the more likely you are to get up from the table and go out and try to control your circumstances. You see, the battle is right here in your mind. Maybe, maybe for you, it's, it's, it's he'll, maybe for you, you're one of these people who you can't control it. You have irrational anxiety all the time. Like when Y2K came out, like, hey, um, you see, you hear what they're saying about Y2K? Yeah, it's going to be a nuclear winter. You need to uh, probably stock up on all the water and build a bunker, and you should probably like live in constant and chronic fear, right? Like the enemy will sit down and try to have dialogue with you to get you ultimately to root in fear so that you will get up and leave the table. But here's the good news. At the table, when you just stay seated at the table and you look what you already have, you look at what's already here, you remind yourself that here, how do you confront... How do you fight the enemy? If the enemy's main tactic is lies, how do you, how do you fight it? With truth. With truth, amen. 
So God has given us a truth at the table that confronts those lies when the enemy tries to sit down and says, hey, be afraid, be very afraid. This is not gonna work out well for you. They're gonna find out about your past. You're gonna be a failure. You're not gonna be able, you know what? I don't think this is gonna end well for your loved one. It doesn't look like things are gonna turn around. When he starts getting in your head and sowing fear, he is lying to you to try to get you to live according to that fear, but God wants you to live seated at the table in his truth. And here's, here's the first kind of myth buster or lie buster. The table, when I'm seated here, is my greatest place of safety. The table is the safest place in the universe because at the table, I am seated with Christ. It says in Colossians, you are seated with Christ. Set your mind on things above. We are seated with Christ in complete and utter victory. You see, Christ is the one who has already taken all the, all the pains, all the, it says in Colossians 3, that he, uh, he disarmed the rulers and authorities of this world, making a public, public spectacle of them on the cross, that he already absorbed all of the powers of this world and then rose in triumph above them through the resurrection. What does that mean? Jesus has already conquered all of the toughest foes, the toughest foes in this world. And as long as you are seated in Christ, you are seated in overwhelming victory. Romans 8 says that we are more than conquerors. When you sit, sit with Christ, you are seated in victory. So, so what's the fight of faith? It's in the presence of cancer. Trusting that my God, as I am seated here in faith, yeah, I saw the report, my God is exceedingly abundantly able he could heal me if he wants, or if I die, I believe in the one who said to, to Mary and Martha that anyone who believes in me, although they die, they shall live. I believe in the one that even if I die has the power to raise me up again. So I sit, I'm seated here knowing that the greatest thing that the enemy could throw at me to be afraid of, God has already conquered it in Christ. I'm resting, I'm seated in the place of victory. The fight for your faith is to stay seated, to stay seated. When fear creeps in your mind, stay seated and say, no, I don't care what you're throwing at me. I mean, you get away from my table. Christ has already conquered all of those things you are trying to get me to get up and take control of my own hands. His hands have already conquered it on a cross. His hands have already conquered it by rolling a stone away. I don't need to live in fear. That's number one. The second, the second lie that the enemy will throw at you is this, if he can't, if he can't like, get at you by making you live in chronic fear, and, I, and I'd say fear is probably the one that drives most of us. It's, it's the one that drives a lot of our decisions, fear of missing out, fear of failure, fear of loss, all those things. But then he'll get a little more fine-tuned and he'll, he'll, he'll take a different approach. Do you mind if I sit? Thanks. If he can't make you fear, he'll throw some other lie in your mind. And where, where he'll try to attack you next is in your place of satisfaction. He will try to essentially attack your contentment. Hey, uh, did you see that Tim in accounting got promoted? You've been there way longer than him. And you're better at your job. Your job kind of sucks, doesn't it? Yeah. You probably should go look for something else because there's no meaning. There's no meaning in that job. Or, or uh, maybe it's maybe it's. Did you see? Here, here's here's one that might hit home. Girl, <laughs> I'm assuming that's how Satan would talk to a girl. Girl, did you see her husband? Man, Elizabeth's husband. Like 
He's out there chopping wood and bringing home the bacon, doing the dishes, and he's sexy. And like, Mom, did you see him? And do you ever notice, too, probably, that he's having that dialogue while your husband, look at Bob over there watching the Dallas Cowboys. Look at chips on his, chips on his chest. <laughs> if only you had a Tim. Bob. Ladies, beware. When your husband is watching football, you are prone to be attacked. Let me just say that. I have felt the enemy swirling around my wife in judgment many a times. She hates when I'm in this posture. It just drives her crazy. She hates this. Right? I think women hate that, don't they? Like, See, the enemy will try to attack your contentment, and he does that by getting you to compare He does that by getting you to look to the left and the right. As long as he can get your eyes off the table, he's got you. But if you can stay focused on what you have at the table, frankly, it doesn't matter what your husband does or doesn't do. It doesn't matter because you have already been given. Think about this in terms of food. And and I believe Jesus is more than okay with us thinking along these lines because he created the Last Supper for us to get our heads around it. In terms of food, Jesus is the most delicious spread that has ever been laid out for your soul. There is nothing more valuable, more lavish, more beautiful, more incredible, more tasty to your soul than Christ Jesus. He is the most precious gift ever laid out. So here's the second way that we confront the lies of the enemy with the truth that at the table, this is my place of greatest satisfaction. The table is my place of greatest satisfaction. Did you know that that's the fight for your morality? When it comes to this idea of like of holiness... Some of you maybe grew up in church. When it comes to this idea of holiness, some of you think that it's about like white knuckling and behavior modification. That's not what it's about. Holiness is found when you choose to stay seated at the table believing that, sorry, that olive is hurting me here. When you stay seated at the table believing that Jesus can satisfy me better than whatever the enemy is trying to tempt me with. It's believing in that moment. And the hard part is this. The table is not actually in front of, like it's in front of you, but it's in front of you in faith. But that website is right there, guys. It's right there. The fight of your faith is to stay seated and say, no, I hear the temptation, I feel it, and yet I am going to trust that if I say no to this and I resist this and I say yes to the table, that I am going to, in the end, be more satisfied because I stayed seated here instead of got up and found satisfaction somewhere else. That's the fight of faith. That's the fight of faith. We confront the lie that it's not good enough. This isn't good enough. There's something better somewhere else. That's where the enemy got Adam and Eve, didn't he? He said, he said what? He said, no, no, God doesn't want you to have it because he's holding out on you. There's something better out there. Come find it. There's nothing better than what you have been given in Christ Jesus. Your soul will never be more satisfied than when you choose to align yourself and stay seated in who Christ is. I guarantee it. Your job will not satisfy you. Your spouse will not satisfy you. That stuff will not satisfy you like Jesus can. That is the fight of faith. Lie number three. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be done in just a second. Are you with me? Lie number three. If he can't get you, if he can't get you to, to live in fear, or if he can't kind of like whet your appetite for something else and get you to get you off the table, he'll hit you with this one. Hey, um, remember last week 
you posted that picture, that beautiful picture of your family, Lynette Mason took it. It's amazing. That awesome picture. Remember that? Yeah. Your, she didn't, your friend, that, that girl, she didn't like your picture. She didn't like your Facebook post. And you know what? She didn't like any of your last 10 Facebook posts. I don't think she likes you. I don't think anyone likes you. Right? And it, uh, if he can't get you with fear, and if he can't get you on your contentment, he'll try to get you on rejection. He'll try to get you to live with this idea that I am not accepted, I am not special, I am not approved. And he will try to weasel his way in through getting at you in this area of rejection. Hey, did you see how that, when you came into church, how that greeter didn't even notice you? Yeah, this church doesn't like you. It's not a welcoming place, right? The enemy will try to weasel his way into your mind. I don't know what it is, what angle he will do, but he will try to confront you by convincing you that you are rejected, that you are a rejected, you don't, you don't belong. And, and, and the way that we fight that, though, is we fight it by reminding ourselves of this truth and staying seated in the truth that in the place of rejection, the table is my place of greatest acceptance. The table is my place of greatest acceptance. If you have your Bible, open back up to verse 5 in Psalm 23. It says this, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And then it says this, you anoint my head with oil. The oil's way down there. Uh, there's a custom, there was a custom in David's day that the host, whenever a guest of honor would show up, would come in and they'd dab a little oil on the head of the guest of honor. It was A, a symbol for the people in the room to say, this is my distinguished guest. It was also a fragrant aroma, and it was something that the service staff, the servants, could identify that I give special preferential treatment to this person. That this person who smells so good, that's the person that I need to make sure has constant flow of wine and constant access to food because that's a special person. What is David saying? He's saying, I'm not just at the table I'm not a guest at the table. Anybody ever sat at the table that you weren't comfortable at? I, I, I'm, I'm like, not, I'm, I'm from Marysville. I'm just not fancy. I, I, have, been, I have been to some, some dinners where I was like, which fork do I use? I'm just going to use this one, right? Like, I don't, and not comfortable. There's no meal like when you are seated with your family. Can I get an amen? Like those of you who have the gift of having a good family. Why? Because... I get to be me. If I don't want to chat, I don't have to chat. If I, don't want, if I want to wear my pajamas, I can wear my pajamas. I get to be me at the table with my family. This is what this is saying. At the table that God has prepared for you in Christ, you aren't just a guest. You are a special guest anointed with oil. Look at how Paul says about being anointed with oil. The Bible actually uses oil as an analogy for receiving the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look how Paul puts it. Romans 8.15, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. You're a son and daughter at the table. That means that if you run out of cheese, you can get up and get more in the fridge. You have fridge rights in God's fridge. How amazing is that? That means you are entirely 
Highly accepted, approved, established. Think about the fears of rejection some of you live with all the time. Like, who are you to start that up? God put a dream in your heart about, about having a ministry or doing this or that in your business. And the enemy wants to confront that with lies. But God says, I've anointed your head with oil. And if I said it, it shall be done. You see, you have been accepted and purposed and approved when you are seated at the table. So the fight, again, is to stay seated at the table in the face of rejection. That group of people dismissed you. You know what? You know who didn't dismiss you? Jesus. God has not looked past you. God has not denied you. God likes your Facebook posts. You know, this is my, this is my kid and I approve this kid. Like God loves you. And the, and the, the way we invite the enemy is to stay seated in, in our acceptance. Like I, I shared this a few weeks ago. The Lord said to me through a, through a friend in just a real intimate moment, I enjoy you, son. Like for someone who lives for approval, like I, I'm, I, am a, I am a high achiever. I like to win. I like to do good. I like to hear, hey, good job. For someone who could very easily get up and leave the table and try to find it somewhere else, to hear that the God of the universe who created me, who created everything, the God in whom angels fear to tread in this presence, spoke to my soul and said, son, I like you. <sighs> what a meal. What a meal I rest. See, at the table, I am accepted and approved. I got, when you sit at the table, you have nothing to prove. You have nothing to prove. Jesus already proved it all. It's already all been proved. Here it is, accepted. Final lie is this. The devil, if he can't get in with appealing to your fear, if he can't get in with appealing to your uh, contentment, if he can't get in by rejecting you, the fourth way he'll hit you is this. He'll say, look around. I see there's just not going to be enough. There's not going to be enough food to go around. He will try to hit you with a lie of scarcity. He'll try to hit you with a lie that, you, that okay, it's great right now, but you better start having other plans and other things on the go because guess what? Whatever you're feeling right now, it's not gonna last. It's temporary. It's going to run out. He'll, he'll hit you with that lie. But look at this. It's right here at the end of verse five. I'm gonna wrap up in just a second. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. And then it says, read it out loud. My, my cup overflows. Now that's loaded. That doesn't mean that the waiter spilled something. Like, yeah, that's not what that is. What that means culturally in their day, the, the, the universal symbol for you need to leave now, I'm out of food, was when the waiter stopped or the servant or the host stopped coming out and filling up your cup with wine. When they stopped filling your cup with wine, that was basically a hint for you that you need to leave now. Some of us could, we need to get some of those hints, don't we? Like back, we need some of those in our culture. Like there's no nice way to tell people, hey, uh, I kind of wish you left an hour ago. <laughs> no. So now everyone's going to be scared to come to my house. Like, so if you go visit the Ingersolls, make sure you leave an hour early. No. These, but this for them was this universal symbol that, okay, the party's over because the cup is done. So by David saying that the, my cup overflows, he's saying God is never ending the party. He's saying the party is never over 
The flow of his goodness never ends. The flow of his mercy never ends. He's not running out of mercy. He's not running out of joy. He's not running out of purpose. He's not running out of of forgiveness. He's not running out of capacity. He's not running out of blessing. God will never, ever, ever run out for what he has spread out on the table. It's always flowing and always coming. My cup overflows. That means that there's not enough mercy. I couldn't sin enough in this world that his mercy could not overwhelm. I couldn't drift far enough that his goodness could not come find me. I could not uh, take things into my own hands and make a giant mess that he could not overflow with fixing it up and restoring me and restoring my life. See, the table reminds me that in the place of scarcity, here's how you, here's how you know the enemy is working, working you. If you find yourself afraid that if I give that or I do that, or I serve this way, if I give that time, if I give that money, if I do this, if you find that thought clip in the back of your mind, oh, but what if you don't have enough? It's the enemy. You see, when you are seated at the table, you are seated in the presence of the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is the one who never runs out of anything. My cup overflows is David's way of saying this cup never runs out. This is why, and I'll just wrap up with this. This is why next week, we do this thing called Love Week. Because Love Week for us, A, is a way that we remind ourselves that no matter what I give, God will provide for it and God will give back to me more than I ever could have given in the first place. If I drink the whole cup, he will fill it up to overflow again. And so every year we have this thing at King's Church called Love Week where we, next week, I'm gonna ask you to give money I'm going to ask you to write a big check for you, whatever that is for you. Generosity is not about how big, how big the zeros are, how many zeros. Generosity is about what actually costs you. I'm going to ask you and I'm going to ask my family. We're going to write, write some checks next week and we're going to pool our resources and we're going to spread the love of God through generosity around the city of St. John. And we do this, first and foremost, we do it for us to confront the lies of the enemy that tells us there's just not going to be enough. Do you know that the lie of scarcity, I, I, am, I think, is the one thing that is holding the Maritimes down more than any other lie? This idea that there's no good jobs, nothing good happens here, economy's in the tank, things are falling apart, there's not going to be, it's not going to end well. You know how we confront that? We confront that as the church by rising up and saying, maybe in your world, Satan, but in ours, we know, we know a God who, who owns everything. And if we give, it will be given unto us. And so if I write a $100 check, God's going to take good care of me and he's going to bless somebody else too. See, I believe that we need to do this, one, to remind ourselves, and two, to confront the lie over this region that says there's just not enough. Nothing defies the enemy like a church being generous. And so next week, we're going to celebrate Love Week as a way to seat ourselves as a whole church body at the table in the generosity and abundance of Christ. Let's stand together. I want to pray and we'll uh, we'll wrap things up. James 4, 7 says this. James 4, 7. Here's here's the big takeaway. James 4, 7 says, uh, it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The way you resist the devil is by reminding yourself of the truth. You don't fight Satan. You don't fight Satan with your fists. You don't fight Satan with your, with your karate chops. You fight Satan with the truth. 
Father, we thank you today that in Christ we are, we are more than conquerors. We thank you today that for every lie, your truth overwhelms it. So God, I pray for the one who's here today that's dealing with fear. Lord, I pray that your perfect love would cast out fear. It would overwhelm the lies the enemy saying, it's not gonna end well. Be afraid, be very afraid that when we gaze upon the cross and we look upon you, Jesus, we'd be reminded today that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, that we have overwhelming victory. Lord, for the one who's discontented, for the one who's looking to the left and the right, seeing this or that, and the enemy's trying to get in on their contentment. Father, I pray that they'd find satisfaction in Christ Jesus like never before today, that the truth is we are satisfied when we are seated at the table. Lord, for the one who's dealing with rejection issues, God, I pray that the mouth of the enemy would be silenced today and that we would hear the, the voice of the Father saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased as we stay seated in Christ. And Father, for those of us who deal with this chronic compulsion to hoard and to hang on and to grab on and this scarcity mindset, would we break it, break that bondage of the enemy in Jesus' name with the truth of this, that give and it will be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, and pouring over into your lap. Jesus, we believe that we cannot outgive you, we cannot run you, we cannot sin your mercy. We can only sit and rest in the overflowing abundance that is presented to us at the table. So Father, we thank you for every lie. You are the truth. Would you free us, set us free, and help us find you to be our victory in the battle. We pray in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.